Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, editor with Gestalt IT, Rich Straffolino. Thanks for joining us. It's going to be a good one. To my left on the podcast screen and in a direction, I guess on the left of the map as well, uh, we have the one, the only, the cloud man himself, Ken Nalbone. Ken, thanks for being here. Thanks, Rich. Happy to be here. Happy Spring Equinox and International Happiness Day to you. Yes, uh, and we could all use some international happiness. That's for sure. Um, Ken, you know, we had a really loaded uh, news week this week, and there were a number of stories. I didn't want to cut them, but we couldn't give them a full discussion. So why don't we do a little news or nah? Sure. We're gonna get Let's started. do it. We're going to get started off with a little Microsoft potential news. You'll determine it, Ken. Microsoft announced that Microsoft Teams is used by 500,000 organizations and 91 of the Fortune 100. This is up from 329,000 stated in September and 200,000 a year ago. Ken, news or nah? Yeah, kind of. I mean, Microsoft Teams continues to grow and become a threat to Slack, so they got to watch out. All right, next up. This one was, was kind of blowing up, and I had some problems with the way it was reported, but I can't get into it. Let me read you a corporate statement, and you need to tell me if this is news or not, Ken. As a result of a server migration project, any photos, videos, and audio files you uploaded more than three years ago may no longer be available on or from MySpace. Ken, news or not? Not really, because nobody uses MySpace. I find it interesting because they spent a year basically trying to recover data before giving up the ghost. So they had some kind of backup strategy. I'd be curious to know what it is, but it's not really a news because it's, it's MySpace. <laughs> I do think it's interesting, though, that they said server migration project, not server migration failure or something like that. So I've seen some conspiracy theories that this wasn't so accidental, but whatever. Uh, next up on news or nah, AWS will offer G4 instances that will use NVIDIA's T4 Tensor Core GPUs. I don't know why they're not calling it the T4 instance, but whatever. These are specifically targeted at AI workloads, although it is the first hardware also to support ray tracing on AWS. Ken, news or not? Yeah, it's news because uh, NVIDIA continues their enterprise push and basically locking down AWS as a huge customer is a big deal. Yeah, we saw some uh, some interesting uh, news from one of their competitors that we'll get into uh, in a little bit here in a deeper discussion. But some other AWS on news or not, Amazon emailed investors about the AWS Pro Rata pilot program. The goal of the program would be to link investors to startups in the AWS ecosystem, although AWS is not actually investing any money themselves in these partners. They're just reaching out mm -hmm. and trying to make those connections. Ken, news or not? So AWS wants to find ways for their customers to keep using AWS. Color me shocked. Um, yes and no. It's just a reminder that a a Amazon is way more than a retailer or a cloud provider. They have so many different revenue streams. They're getting so big. They're doing a little bit of everything. Yeah, a little, uh, little referral income, I'm sure, there. All right, Ken. Next up, Slack announced that enterprise key management will be available to enterprise customers. This will give organizations control of their own crypto keys and is targeted at financial, health, and government markets, basically anything that's regulated. Ken? News or not? Yeah, kind of. I worked in a regulated industry once upon a time. Uh, we evaluated products and platforms based on this kind of criteria. Can we can control the encryption keys? It's important to some customers. So for those customers, it's news, yes. All right, and finally, uh, we had a little, uh, little exploit news here. An exploit that affected all versions of the Archiver app WinRAR over the past 19 years was discovered in late February. McAfee announced this week that they have found at least 100 unique exploits using this flaw in the wild, including politically motivated spear phishing attacks. Ken, news or not? 
Yeah, it's news because I think just about every Windows user in the world has had to open some kind of archive file that they use WinRAR for. And how many people just click past the splash screen that tells them to purchase the product or update the product? There are probably millions of vulnerable WinRAR instances sitting out there on people's computers. That's just one more attack vector for malware. And the, the patch for this is only a beta release right now, I believe, and there's no way to automatically update it. So you have to actually go to their website, which no one has done since they installed Windows on their PC, um, and, and actually mm-hmm. all the patches. If you haven't done so, and you use WinRAR, which is hard to say, please do so. All right, Ken, let's jump into some discussion topics here. We had some net neutrality news, um, and I think an interesting angle here. Uh, Vermont passed legislation late last year that required uh, ISPs to follow net neutrality guidelines to be eligible for government contracts. Basically, if you weren't willing to sign this pledge and provide a little bit of transparency into how you are following it, you missed out on a huge uh, market segment, potentially. Since October, the state has been in a lawsuit with lobbying groups for the ISPs to stop the law in U.S. District Court. Two states have now come to an agreement to suspend enforcement of the law pending the result of another lawsuit against the FCC. That lawsuit was brought by 22 states, including Vermont and I believe California, and seeks to reverse the FCC's net neutrality repeal of the FC and the FCC's presumption of state net neutrality or preemption of state net neutrality laws, aka FCC rules override state rules, at least according to what the FCC is saying. They seem to be a little self-interested there. We've now seen both California and Vermont hold off on their state legislation for net neutrality based on this lawsuit. How big of a deal are we looking at with this case here? I think it's a big deal. And, you know, to be sure, the issue of net neutrality isn't going away uh, just because we saw a change in White House administrations and may see one again, you know, in a couple of years. Um, I expect this debate to go on for years to come, regardless of who's chairing the FCC and who appoints them. Um, I don't think that this is necessarily something that can be solved by state regulations either, because we're talking about a national or even global network that spans you know, whatever physical borders we men or mankind can make up. So um, I think it's a big deal. I don't think uh, we're going to put it to rest anytime soon. The fact that they're suspending the law, I don't, does that indicate to you that they expect some kind of resolution at a federal level relatively soon? Because I didn't. Well, at least from Vermont's perspective, they have a few more cards to play in this regard because California's is a much more wider sweeping kind of GDPR kind of style privacy uh, regulation, whereas Vermont's law is very much, you know, kind of carrot and stick here where it's like, hey, if you play ball uh, with these net neutrality rules, hey, you get all the, you know, you can potentially get this big ball of money from the state of Vermont, I guess they have, they have maple syrup money down there. So, but the, but the idea being that even if this FCC uh, verdict doesn't go 100% where they say, okay, the FCC's repeal of net neutrality is still upheld, if, the pre, if, they, if they rule against the preemption over state law, you know, Vermont's law is still on the books and they, could, they can kind of still do that. Whereas the net neutrality laws, I believe, would still supersede what was set up in California or at least not have as wider national implications. So I feel like Vermont has less to lose by playing this card, whereas California is kind of in an all or nothing game. So um, for them, uh, you know, they're kind of playing with house, a little bit of house money, at least. I see. Okay. All right. Next up, we had an interesting survey from uh, some IT executives. Uh, I think it was about 400 IT executives found that 58% uh, deploy new software builds daily, while 26% deploy new builds hourly, which 
seems insane. So I guess this whole agile thing is kind of catching on. Uh, but automated continuous testing is still catching up. Only 24% said automation was used for test cases and 36% uh, spent a majority of their time uh, searching, managing, maintaining, and generating test data, aka it was not automated. 28% uh, said they plan to implement AI into the continuous testing process to kind of take the human interaction out of that uh, whole work chain. Uh, is this the most natural entry point for kind of AI tech in the enterprise, Ken? And do these numbers seem a little low or high to you? I, I kind of didn't know how to feel about this. On the one hand, I was like, why isn't everyone doing continuous testing unless you're like an old stodgy company? But on the other hand, IT moves excessively slow sometimes. Yeah, or baby steps, so, Rich, baby so steps. I, I, yeah, put these in numbers into context for me. It's, it's good to see so many um, enterprises adopting, uh, you know, the, the kind of release schedule that you talked about where they're releasing daily or even hourly. That's, that's encouraging to see such high numbers. The fact that they have an automated testing, you know, that usually seems to follow on to a new software development methodology. So at least adoption's growing. So I... I find it encouraging. And, you know, as much as we like to mock AI as the solution for everything, this does seem like a prime use case. You know, we, we've seen um, many companies kind of adopt this. Like we saw Datadog recently acquire a company called Madumbo that has an AI testing platform to kind of integrate into their stack so that you're testing at every level uh, of the application stack, not just the performance, but the build to make sure that what you're shipping out, you know, will actually work. Um, I think it's cool. I think AI testing is, and testing in gen automated testing in general are still early on, which is why we're not seeing a ton of adoption in the enterprise. I think, would you say it was 28%? Yeah, for the, uh, for the, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, 28% said they plan to implement AI. So, oh, plan to much, implement. It's yeah, much lower, probably. So, how many actually have implemented? Do we even have a number for that? I bet you it's uh, one of those 26% uh, that are deploying hourly builds. At least some of them are doing that. Th that was what was weird to me was seeing only the 24% uh, uh, using automation in test cases. And that means, I'm, I'm assuming there's a very high crossover of people that are deploying uh, uh, automation for test cases and doing the hourly builds. But at best case, mm -hmm. that also means there's 2% of those companies that aren't doing that, which seems like uh, like a hellscape for the people that actually work. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you got to... I don't even remember the expression, you know, got to go through hell to get to whatever, but it, it sounds like that. That's just the, the age old story of enterprise IT. You solve one issue. There's, there's some new problem that needs to be solved. And so that, that that's the newest one, I suppose. Yeah. And, and I think we're, we're going to be seeing, you know, when you, you, you said this seems like an interesting point for AI, I really see it for test data. I think the concern probably would be that, you know, if you have an AI generating actual test data, uh, you know, on a very rapid basis, that there may be some bias or something that in, in introduced there. But that's the same case if you're going to have humans some kind of either gathering that or correlating that unless it was, you know, real world anonymized test data, that kind of stuff. So uh, I think that's a really interesting use case and one that seemingly wouldn't be that hard to implement, but we'll see. All right, next up, uh, Ken, how do you like your supercomputers? Don't answer. Intel likes them exascale. They expect to complete their first exascale supercomputer by 2021, so just a few years away, the $500 million system is called Aurora and is being built with Cray uh, for the Department of Energy's Argoni National Laboratory in Chicago. Aurora will be built on Cray's Shasta computing platform, which there had to be a better name, and will combine <laughs> a host of Xeon scalable processors and next-gen persistent Optane memory uh, with Cray's slingshot high-performance interconnect kind of uh, doing all the scaling there. Aurora will be used for extreme weather forecasting, accelerating medical treatments, charting the human brain, blah, 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 all the usual supercomputer stuff. 
boring. While this will be the first uh, for Intel, if successful, the first exascale uh, computer that is, uh, we're looking at right now three sites in China and Japan's post-K supercomputer hoping to hit exascale performance when they go live in 2020. Now, usually what happens with these supercomputers is they get turned on there's a whole bunch of bugs and and like literal like physical interconnects that have to be done. These are these are massive machines, so they don't mm -hmm. hit their optimal performance for quite some time. Sometimes after being put online, still they have a year uh, of headway to kind of be the first exascale computer. To put this in some historical context here, IBM's Roadrunner became the first petascale computer on May 25th, 2008. Are we going to be talking about the first zettascale computer sometime in the 2030s, Ken? Uh, possibly. I mean, I don't know how Moore's law affects supercomputers as opposed to, you know, every other computing use case we've seen over time. But the race, the pace of innovation just doesn't seem to slow down, even though the methodologies do when it comes to computing. So sure, why not? And I, I think it's cool to see that supercomputing is still a thing for scientific research. And apparently not every intense computational problem can be solved by just spinning up a bunch of spot instances in AWS, for example. So, <laughs> you know, I think there's a perception that the amount of compute power in the world is shrinking because infrastructure is disappearing behind APIs. But stories like this remind us that there is still a need for raw computing power. And as long as there is, we're going to see innovation continue like this. So, yeah, Zeta scale is possible uh, in the 2030s. Yeah, maybe it won't be, you know, 20 on 2030. Maybe it'll be more in the mid 2030s or something. But sure, why not? Uh, I say that as somebody who's completely unqualified <laughs> as an engineer to make that prediction. But yeah, sure. Well, I do think it's interesting, though, that we've seen, you know, uh, back in the day, I remember, you know, some of the, the, the biggest supercomputers in the world were just like a bunch of like AMD Optane CPUs just all kind of mm -hmm. slapped together and stuff like that. You know, we've seen um, the, the the two top U.S. supercomputers, I believe, are using IBM's, uh, what is it, Spark 9 and a bunch of NVIDIA cards, their NV100s, I want to say, don't quote me on that. But, you know, it, one, there doesn't seem to be one set architecture that everybody's investing in. This is Intel's approach. You know, uh, uh, Japan's post-K and their K supercomputers before that, you know, they kind of run on their own infrastructure. All the Chinese ones kind of run on their own hardware as it is. So I, I think there's a really good chance to see Zeta scale, maybe not the 2030s, you know, I, I don't want to put a timetable on it, but just because we don't have like one homogenous um, um, set of architectures that we're using to build these, I feel like means that we're not going to be locked in kind of where we're at with, you know, you know, Moore's law in the x86 world where it's, we're stuck on x86 for, for a long period of time. So at some point, you know, maybe advances in that peter out. Whereas, yeah, I mean, you run into physical limitations with, with, physics on, you know, how small you can make transistors and that kind of stuff. But I also think, you know, we're, we're really just starting to see kind of the importance of interconnect scalability, latency, and that kind of stuff be really explored, um, at least on the enterprise level. And I know supercomputers have been worried about that for some time. So I think there's a lot of room still to grow. Um, mm -hmm. Again, as an unqualified non-engineer man, uh, <laughs> please listen. Uh, non-engineer man sounds like the worst <laughs> superhero ever. Non-engineer man. He has no idea what to do with the slide roll. All right, here we go. Uh, ne <laughs> next up, uh, Ken, we had a little bit of drama, I understand, uh, in the open mm -hmm. source world. Last week, AWS released Open Distro for Elasticsearch. This takes the proprietary advanced security, event monitoring and alerting, performance analysis, and SQL query features that Amazon developed for Elasticsearch and open sources them under Apache 2.0 license. Who could be mad about that? The Amazon's not even claiming to fork, um, you know, the Elasticsearch uh, project. They're going to be sending all the contributions upstream uh, with patches, all that kind of good open source gooiness that everyone knows and love. Uh, but that's not how a lot of open source advocates are seeing it, is it, Ken? Uh, no, it's not. What kind of controversy not. has this caused? 
you know, product aside, this is just the latest in a saga of, let's just say, controversial moves uh, AWS has made in the open source space. They have released a number of services based on open source software and then been um, criticized for not contributing back to uh, the open source communities that they built the service upon. You know, MongoDB, Redis, MariaDB, Apache Kafka are all examples where they've drawn the ire of the projects they've built upon. And in a lot of cases, we've seen the open source license change to try to combat that without much success so far, I'll note. But, you know, what can you do when you're an open source company? Uh, the, the response, you know, to this is to say, we're fully invested in open source. And here's proof of it by releasing an open source distribution of Elasticsearch, which they claim is not a fork. Elasticsearch, Elastic claims it is. Many people... Uh, claim on one side or the other. It's, it's kind of a divisive issue about whether or not it's a fork. I, I kind of tend to fall on the side of, yeah, it, it's a fork. And they claim that they're going to contribute back upstream to Elastic. But, um, you know, they, they've this is largely just seen as a tone-deaf response to the criticism. And it's just overall seems bad for open source when you invest so much time in a project and then you see somebody else making money off of it. I mean, a lot of these are funded by a for-profit um, division or, or company, or basically there's a foundation, there's the for-profit and the for-profit is the most significant contributor to a product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you've got AWS coming along and releasing a, a product based on the open source version, that's competitive with the for-profit contributors. You wonder about the potential for success in, in that kind of business model. So, you know, can't AWS contribute directly back to the projects that they use without risking revenue and proprietary their proprietary software being you know made available to everybody else that could compete with them? If anybody could figure it out, you'd think AWS can. So I'm not convinced that they're putting their best foot forward when it comes to uh, being a good custodian of open source software. Personally, is this you know I think a lot of problems that we you know like pro- unforeseen problems I guess. Uh, when it comes to maybe the internet or, or you know, uh, modern technology or the scale of modern technology is a kind of unimaginable scale. Is this just an issue of Amazon has hit such a, I guess, a dominance and, and such a scale when it comes to mm-hmm. kind of influence in the cloud that it perhaps was, I mean, I guess not unimaginable, right? I mean, open source is very much um, a response to, you know, kind of the dominance of either IBM or Microsoft, you know, take your pick of, of these, you know, uh, kind of 800 pound gorillas uh, that were at one time just so dominant uh, in IT. But as as Amazon kind of gone a, a scale above that in terms of ubiquity and size and influence that, you know, kind of open source licenses just can't, you know, they just were never designed with that in mind. Is that is that kind of the issue? And is is then it just a matter of, okay, this is the world that we live in. This is kind of the influence. We're starting to see that, right? The MongoDB modified their license basically so that, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you were being like a cloud service provider, right, you had to follow, you know, certain guidelines, right? Yep, exactly. And AWS responded by basically releasing a new service uh, of their own that is not open source called DocumentDB and basically saying, well, we, we're just not going to use Mongo anymore. And you, they could be using MongoDB under the, un, under the covers, but whatever they're doing apparently, you know, comes from before that, that license was enacted and they can just do whatever they want. I think this is less of an issue of, you know, AWS's size and, you know, whether it's suitable for them to use uh, open source. It's more just a fact that they're a huge corporation and they're doing what's best for them and their investors. And that's making money and not necessarily stewarding open source code into the future. Um, Sad, but true. Uh, You know, 
what is their first responsibility? Any good finance major will be to maximize shareholder wealth. Whether you like that response or not, that's the reality of companies like Amazon. It's kind of funny that you mentioned IBM and Microsoft because we've got Microsoft now kind of proudly trumpeting the fact that they've got so many more contributors on GitHub than anybody else and IBM swallowing up Red Hat and who knows what that means for the future of that open source business. But those seem like two companies that are far more invested in open source than AWS ever was. And AWS founded its fortunes basically on open source, you know, they, they, they were the first major cloud provider. And how did they do that with o- open source hypervisors with IaaS and all the other services they built to kind of get this all going in the first place? So is the I guess is the solution to this is it we need a less dominant Amazon? We, I mean, we already have we still have competition in the market, right? Amazon is dominant. Mm-hmm. There certainly is competition in the market. So if you're if you're not happy with this as a developer, as a company or whatnot, you can theoretically, you know, uh, choose other options. You know, you can kind of vote with your dollar uh, in a very capitalistic mm-hmm. sense. Um, but is it, you know, will the solution also be, you know, part and parcel of refining these open source licenses to take account that Amazon may be, you know, a, a party that will take advantage of poorly worded or perhaps not not poorly worded, um, more broad uh, open source terms. You know, I don't know what the solution is. I just know that it's a problem, um, and I, I think that you know that. Yes, voting with your wallet will will be a significant factor, um, particularly if you're an outspoken critic and you have a you you play a large you have a large stake in AWS. I guess I, the the good news is I don't think that AWS is quite the monopoly yet. They clearly have a huge lead in in the cloud provider space, but. Uh, we see Azure continue to grow. Uh, GCP is a distant third, but they can have continued interesting announcements coming out. Who knows if that platform will grow, especially since I got a new CEO earlier this year. Um, whether or not competition will truly affect AWS's stance and attitudes towards open source, I don't know, but something has to at some point, right? Well, and I, I think we're going to be seeing some interesting uh, uh, uses for GCP, perhaps from Google themselves, because they announced a new yeah. game streaming service uh, that'll be launching later this year called Stadia, uh, which I guess is plural for stadium, uh, with the tagline, the <laughs> data center is your platform, which I thought was really like as, as someone who works in a, for, you know, an IT uh, uh, media company, right? That's like a re- that's really weird to see that as like this mm-hmm. very open uh, and consumer-focused platform, but Google claims that they can offer the ability to stream 4K uh, video, you know, video games at 4K resolution at 60 frames per second, which is kind of you know the sweet spot for a lot of games over a 25 megabit per second connection, which is pretty accessible, I think. To I would hope to uh, to a lot of customers, at least in the U.S. Um, Google partnered with AMD on their data center hardware, so kind of a correlation to you know uh, Nvidia working with AWS. We have AMD working very closely with Google. It's not really surprising to do a lot of semi-custom and custom silicon for uh, mm-hmm. console providers, so they're very familiar with the space. But they're going to be able to offer uh, with the kind of their with their base platform 10.7 teraflops uh, using a custom 2.7 gigahertz x86 processor and 16 gigabytes of RAM. There are some interesting enterprise angles to this that I kind of wanted to dig into. Uh, The streams won't be uh, kind of just over the internet as it were. Instead, Google will be leveraging their massive network of edge nodes to carry things through privately as far as possible, kind of manage the the traffic much more actively than they could uh, just by shooting it out over the open internet. And considering Google has these nodes pretty much everywhere that they would want to be, can can really deliver some really great quality of service, I'm sure. Um, the data center hardware will be scalable to allow for to allow for more demanding games, especially as time goes on. So, you know, this base unit is capable of 10.7, uh, uh, what is it, teraflops? I believe, no, wait, teraflops, I'm wrong. 
Yes, teraflops. Cool. Uh, 10.7, but you can like stack them. At least that's how they were showing it. I wasn't sure if that's just a pure, okay, we can scale these fairly linearly, um, you know, using our cool Google disaggregated backend, or if it was maybe more of a composable situation, I thought that would be really uh, kind of a cool idea there. Well, hopefully we'll get some more details on that soon. And the service, uh, they have this own, they have their own controller. You can play basically on any platform you want, right? So you can do it on a laptop, a tablet, a phone, whatever, uh, even a Chromecast, which I thought was interesting, but they have their own controller and that that connects over Wi-Fi, not to the device that's displaying the game, but uh, to directly to the service to kind of reduce oh. latency further, which I think is a really interesting idea. And it's kind of almost makes the controller in a weird way an edge device, which I thought was kind of a, a cool way to look at that. If mm -hmm. Google can satisfy gamers' performance who, you know, have very strict requirements or at least demands when it comes to, you know, super low latency, super high response times, that kind of stuff. Is this a way for kind of Google to sneakily build out Chrome OS and expand the tech to full to, to just full on stream applications, you know, to have your Photoshop running uh, over this platform and it there's it's the same as basically having it installed locally on your machine? If they can do 4K 60 frames a second? Yeah, I mean, well, if if you can get games working first with the kind of low latency that gamers demand, then surely you can deliver a desktop experience that it lives up to any expectation of an enterprise user. So you either Google can use this as an opportunity to build a streaming application platform that can be impactful for the enterprise, or it will fail to gain traction and Google will kill it like pretty much every other product that they've ever had. Uh, but, but seriously though, I think the uh, real story here is edge, edge computing. Um, latency is a real thing and you can't overcome the speed of light. So other services that have uh, previously tried to have this kind of streaming model before that, and have failed, like OnLive was the first one, I believe. Um, you know, I, I didn't really follow it closely. I believe they probably tried to stand up a cloud service, you know, a few data centers around the country, but it just wasn't close enough to the actual users to deliver the kind of performance that they needed. And, and so now you've got edge computing coming to the rescue, you know, multiple locations, you know, smaller in scale probably, but, you know, far more dispersed and closer to the actual customer. And we're seeing that, you know, once again, cloud computing is not the magic bullet for every application. You know, maybe you need low latency, maybe you need high computing power. Uh, but in this case, Google's got an answer and it's not, you know, it, of course, yes, GCP is part of it, but the delivery mechanism coming over the edge is what I think is a really interesting thing here. Yeah, well, and I think it's the, the other interesting element here is that it's not just they're like, hey, you know, plug your game into our data center and you can stream it over Stadia or whatever. They are actively courting developers to develop specifically for the platform, right? So they, yeah. they've courted some pretty big names there, which makes sense because, again, you can kind of account for the fact that yes, that like the speed of light is a factor more so than when a console is plugged in, you know, 10 feet away from the person that, you know, from, from the, the display that's going to be putting it on there. Um, so, I, but I, I think that's actually a better opportunity to really fine tune this and really make it a, a fairly seamless experience. It's interesting to note though, that Microsoft uh, demoed at um, what uh, the game, uh, not the game developers conference. It was another big gaming show. I forget what it was, but their own game streaming service, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite as ambitious or what they showed perhaps was quite as ambitious. I don't want to speak for Microsoft's ambition. Uh, <laughs> Lord knows uh, Sachi Mania has no bounds, but the, you know, the idea that, okay, well now we have two of the big public cloud providers getting into this kind of game streaming model. Uh, Google, I think is bigger news because they've never really been in gaming before. Uh, but the, idea and it kind of got me thinking you know 
I don't think Amazon's approach is to launch a game platform necessarily, but I could see them giving the tools for other companies, you know, maybe to do so and very easily host that on AWS. Um, but I, yep. I just thought it, I, I just thought it was interesting to see Google kind of taking these these kind of enterprise ideas and applying them very directly to a consumer product. Yeah. And I will mention one other thing that I don't think this is going to end up being some kind of extension of Chrome OS simply because I don't know if you saw it, but Google's st trying, starting to pull engineers off some, a lot of their hardware based projects. So I'm, I think the cert, uh, future of the Chromebooks, for example, is in doubt. And I'm not really sure what the future is there. Yeah. Maybe not, maybe not Chrome OS, but, uh, you know, being able to just fire anything up in your browser, uh, regardless True. of platform, you know, I think could be, uh, to Google's advantage as well. Uh, well, Ken, thank you so much, uh, for being on the Gestalt IT rundown this week. This was a lot of fun. Um, where can people find more about you, uh, if they are so inclined? Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Ken Nalbo, and you can find my writing on gestaltit.com. It's a good place to be. You can find stuff from me uh, there as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's MR Anthropology. Um, and we'll be back next week, uh, Wednesdays at 1230 p.m. Eastern Time, running down the IT News of the Week. Uh, until then, for Ken Nalbone, I'm Rich Straffolino, and wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day. <laughs>